Hi, my name is Darío de la Peña. I'm with Underwriters Laboratories and you are listening to IP Friday. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to the 31st episode of IP Fridays. Our special guest today in this interview is Dario de la Peña, who is Global Security and Brand Protection Manager for Latin America for Underwriters Laboratories. And he will speak about product safety and certification marks. But before we head into the interview, I will tell you about a Spider-Man toy case, a patent case that was recently decided by the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, and also about the enforcement database of the EU Observatory. As you already may be aware, you can file a request for custom seizures of fake goods and you can make this request EU-wide. Uh, the request typically has to be filed with the National Customs Office. In Germany, this can be done electronically. And overall, this works quite well. But now the EU decided to establish an enforcement database that uh, is hosted by the EU Observatory. This enforcement database is free of charge and users can tell the database about their IP rights in Europe. My understanding is that this database is not meant as a substitute or alternative to the traditional request for custom seizures, but rather an additional tool to help EU customs officials to identify fake goods. The system is interlinked with the official customs officials uh, database Taxut, T-A-X-U-T, for the people who might know that. And it will just make it easier for customs officials to identify fake goods. So my recommendation is, since it's free of charge, whenever you file an official request for custom seizures with your national customs office, um, there is no harm in also opening a new ticket or case with the enforcement database of the EU Observatory. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.ipfridays.com edb for enforcement database. So ipfridays.com edb. In a recent Spider-Man toy patent case, the Supreme Court stands by a past decision. And there is actually two lessons learned by this uh, US Supreme Court decision. First of all, Justice Elena Kagan is obviously a big Spider-Man fan. And she also makes the point that the Supreme Court should use its power cautiously when it is asked to overrule a precedent. If you are a Spider-Man fan, then this is really something to read. 
The invention protected by the patent was a toy made up of a glove with a valve and a canister of pressurized foam and it allowed children to role play as Spider-Man in person by shooting webs, really pressurized foam strings, from the palm of their hand, Justice Kagan wrote. She continues to write, Patents endow their holders with certain superpowers, but only for a limited time. <laughs> Later in the decision, she writes, as against this super-powered form of stare decisis, we would need a super-special justification to warrant reversing Brulot, which is the earlier decision. The two parties who were suing each other agreed that license fees should be paid longer than the actual patent term, where in fact the earlier decision Brulot said that royalty payments after the expiration of a patent were unlawful. Just to give you an idea what this case was actually about. So if you want to read more about this case, um, you can head to www.ipfridays.com slash Spiderman. ipfridays.com slash Spiderman. And this will direct you to an excellent article by the New York Times. So now it's time for our interview with Dario de la Pena. So Ken, take it away. Ralph, I am joined today by Dario de la Pena, who is joining us from Mexico City. Dario is the Global Security and Brand Protection Manager for Latin America at Underwriters Lab Laboratories, or more commonly known as UL. Founded in 1894, UL is a global independent safety science company with more than a century of experience innovating safety solutions from the public adoption of electricity to new breakthroughs in sustainability, renewable energy, and nanotechnology. Dedicated to promoting safe living and working environments, UL helps safeguard people, products, and places in important ways, facilitating trade and providing peace of mind. UL certifies, validates, tests, inspects, audits, and advises, and educates in over 104 countries. Welcome, Dario, to IP Fridays. Hello. Thank you very much. Dario, can you tell us about your position at UL? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I worked for UL for about a uh, little bit more than 11 years. The first uh, stage within UL, I work in the training department, and now I uh, give my services, I offer my services uh, in the legal department as a brand protection or, or um, a general manager for Latin America. Mm -hmm. A brand protection for UL is something very important, and, and it is a program that we have in, since uh, 2004. And since then, we have been looking for protecting our brand in the market and not just in, in the U.S., but as well globally. And Derek, what does the UL certification mark stand for? Well, the UL certification is the means of which a manufacturer requests from us testing for their products so they could be able to access to global markets. That is when a manufacturer, the, the owner of a product, wants to access to these markets they have to fulfill with certain requirements. One of those requirements is related to safety. What we do in our laboratories, engineering laboratories, is to test those products 
against safety features. Mm-hmm. Mainly, of course, we are known worldwide regarding electric and electronic products. So what we do is that we test those products and see how they, how they safety they are. So when the user, the consumer, uses that product, it, it doesn't happen anything if the product fails. Of course, the guarantee of the or the warranty of the product is given by the manufacturer, the owner. But what we do is that we certify the product against its safety, so the user, the consumer, can safely use it, having the confidence that it is certified against standards, international criteria that make their life easier and safer. Yes, and these standards are all over the world, I assume, right? Well, these standards are are known as UL standards. They are designed, there could be, uh, of course, designed by engineers all over the world, and they are applied, they are voluntary. They are not, uh, as a a part of uh, industry sector, a a must for an industry, but they are used worldwide, of course, more commonly in the U.S. and the Americas. Mm -hmm. Now, how big of a problem are counterfeit UL marks these days? Well, uh, as we all know, every product that can be manufactured, every product that that is in in the market worldwide, can or could be um, could be false, could be used, manufactured in a false way. Mm-hmm. That way, the the um, organizations, the different organizations, are applying our technology to be able to copy those products, but. The bad thing is that these products are fake. So when the, the consumer uses the product, the product the, will not work as it should be because it is not the authentic product. Its components are not the right ones, are not the, the ones that are according to its main purpose. And, of course, they do not comply with the UL standards and, of course, not as well about the certification. Now, when we talk about these fake products, we are talking about, as well, a fake label, and therefore a fake UL mark certification. So this misleads the consumer that thinks that the product, it is certified by UL, and it is not. So at the end, they are, you know, the consumer is using something that is not safety, that it doesn't have the, doesn't comply with the requirement that it should, and therefore we have to take care and we have to protect our brand and to go against those responsible of having those products in the market. Are you finding that these counterfeit UL marks are being applied in one country and then shipped uh, to another country, or is it that these marks are put in at at the uh, destination uh, where these products end up? Well, this is a very interesting question that you you do, because in the past, and we are talking maybe uh, 10, 20 years, that was the usual channel of, uh, of sending and, and shipping the products. But now with globalization, you know that everybody could send, manufacture, sell commerce with products of all over the world. Mm-hmm. So now we have channels in which a product could be manufactured in Asia, then brought to America, and months later you can find it in Europe, or you mm-hmm. can find it again in Asia, or you can find it in, in South America. So the organized crime, what it's doing is that they are using different channels of either by land or by sea, by air, to transport those products and to go through customs without being noticed 
and then by land they could be transported to different countries. For example, we we have seen that in some cases the product is being received. For example, um, could be Chile or could be Ecuador, and then by land they could be um, distributed all over Latin America. But as well, they could go up to Mexico and then to the U.S. And the problem is that they change the labels, they change the paperwork, they go uh, around the, the roads undetected, and suddenly when you find out, they are in the market and you don't know exactly where they are coming from. Wow. Now, if a product has a counterfeit UL mark, what are some of the practical implications for companies and consumers? Well, when we talk about this, this kind of implications, of course, talking about UL, the most important issue would be safety. But when we talk about counterfeiting and not just products with the UL market, just this uh, general way, we're talking about a market or a, an activity, an illegal activity that affects all factors of human beings. For example, of course, we're talking about safety, but as well, these products, as, uh, as they don't work the way they should be, they could um, affect the environment. Mm. Uh, they could as well affect, uh, for example, when we talk about, let's say, about music, that in certain countries, more than 50% of the market is filled with counterfeit CDs, music CDs. So imagine how that affects the, the music industry. We are talking about companies that could be closing, uh, jobs that are not being offered, and this could affect not only a, a an industry, but a city, but as well a country. So when we talk about counterfeiting, it, it touches all the aspects that surround the human being. Mm-hmm. And what does UL do to enforce its trademark rights internationally? Uh, what What steps does it take? Okay, uh, you know that UL has 115 years of existence, but it was being lately, and as well, this has to, to, it is related to globalization, that approximately in 2004, by a request of our customers of doing something to help them to protect their products of being counterfeit, because our label as well was being counterfeit within, within their products, to develop a program to help them and contribute to the uh, law enforcement to be able to um, reduce the amount of counterfeit products within the market. With this, UL developed a, an area, a department that belongs to legal, that has three main programs or pillars of action. They are based on three um, actions that, um, let's say, that they fulfill or they attack the problem from different point of view, from different angles. First one, of course, is law enforcement. We have a customs program. We have a uh, constant relationship with different governments, with custom agencies, and not just in the U.S., but, of course, all over the world, where there are products with the U.S. mark. And we help them to detect and to determine with professional reports if a product is authentic or not. That is, when customs, when the custom agents, receive a product that is suspicious of being counterfeit, they send, the, they send us pictures and information about the product. 
with this, we can uh, execute not just engineer analysis, but as well rasterability, tra tracing what all the information that is on the label. So we are able to determine if this product is coming from an authentic source, it is manufactured in the right facility, in the right country, and therefore we can determine and tell them with an official report if the product is fake or, or is authentic. Mm -hmm. That would be the, the main, let's say, proactive and, and uh, the one that gives the best results against counterfeiting. The second pillar of our program is training. We have to train those custom agents. We train all federal policemen, all agents, investigators, every professional that is related to these crimes, the IP crimes. We help them to detect, to be able to detect what is authentic and what is fake. With this training, and we have trained more than 10,000 people all over the world, they have training tools to be able to do the work in a better way. The third pillar, and, and no less important, is alliances. Alliances is something very important that we consider in our department because if we are talking about organized crime, they are, we are talking about transnational. That is, they are organized between countries, two, three, or five countries that participate in just one product that is being counterfeit and transported and, and, and marketed and commercialized in, in different countries. Mm -hmm. So the same way we have to do alliances worldwide to be able to respond in the same manner and, of course, more efficient. So with these alliances, not only with governments, but as well with uh, the um, private sector, different industries, different organizations, ONGs that are related to the um, IP crimes, we work together to be able to get better results. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. So there really are... Three, three prongs or pillars, as you call them, uh, to UL's initiatives. Yeah, that is correct. And what are some of the hotbed areas these days for counterfeiting? Are there any particular places in the, in the world that you're finding, uh, again and again are, uh, let us call them hotbeds for counterfeiting? Well, um, you know that counterfeiting is an activity, an illegal activity that is based on economy. When we are talking about different economies that are maybe undeveloped uh, on, on or that are in the way of, of developing, these industries, this group of people, they found that counterfeiting is a very easy way to get money. Mm -hmm. In certain cases, we are talking about that's the way they, they, they do their living. That's how they bring food to their tables, to their homes. So even though it is something that, that we know that they need, it is uh, against the law. So it could be found all over the world. I can tell you that in many places we have found from Asia, from Latin America, from um, Middle East. What we, we have seen, and this is regarding UL products exclusively, most of the products that are counterfeit are manufactured in Asia, different countries from the Asia region. Mm -hmm. When we talk about medicines, when we talk about um, auto spare parts, all kinds of products that are being counterfeit, they could come from different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the destiny? Same thing. All over the world we are seeing these kinds of products, 
And of course, we are trying to attack. We are trying to cover all these that UL has a coverage regarding the, their market. And instead of having the authentic ones, we are having a mix between authentic and uh, fake products. Mm. Now, are there any particular products that you are seeing uh, counterfeiters gravitating to, whereas time and time again you're seeing repeats of the same types of goods? Okay, yeah, thank you very much for, for that question because it is very interesting how, as well, they have, a, and, and this is the organized crime, they do some marketing, let's say, investigation, so they do know which are the hot products that they should or they uh, could market in a more easy way. So when we talk about the, the easiest or the most common ones that we see, we're talking about uh, cellular batteries, we're talking about uh, adapters, lamps, USB adapters. Um, for example, something that is very common are the, the batteries for uh, both cellular or for um, computers or for uh, different products, those batteries or those adapters. There are small products that are very easy with some kind of technology to manufacture. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as, as per the size, they are very easy to transport uh, thousands and thousands of these kind of products. Sure. And what about wearable technology? We're reading about uh, and seeing things every day in the media on wearable technology. Do you foresee counterfeits in this area, and what will be UL's response? Well, UL has has to kinds of actions against these kind of products. One is the, the reaction type of, of, of action, and that is when we receive information from customs that there is a product within a custom port that is trying to enter a, within a country, within a region. And the other one is a proactive action that we apply. This is as well based on our investigations in which we can detect which products are or are able or are being more um, feasible or more more probabilities to be um, counterfeited mm-hmm. so that way we can anticipate what the organized crime would be able to do but again this is this is guessing and this is based in the statistics and in the um, relationship that we have with other organizations such as I don't know Interpol Europol or different um, government agencies in which we exchange this intelligence, this this information, and therefore we would be able, could be able to anticipate of what they are doing. Mm-hmm. Now, Dario, if people listening to this podcast want to know if they have counterfeit UL marks on their products or supply chain, uh, what should they do? If they do have a counterfeit product, well, when we talk about counterfeiting, Organized crime has access to high technology and has access to almost copy identically each product that they counterfeit. In some cases, it is very difficult to determine just by the common eye of a consumer if a product is fake or authentic. What we recommend to do or not to do to be able to have your home, your office safe of fake products is, first one, Look for the normal or common signs, pricing, for example. When we talk about a, let's say, a USB adapter, usually these kind of adapters cost maybe around $20. So when you see one that is $5 or 3 for 10 
something's wrong, something fishy. Okay. In some cases, of course, they could be a sale or a, a bargain that you can find, but you will not find them that easy or that low. The second thing that I would recommend, the second action that I that I would say is something uh, that is very reliable to do, is not to buy in swap meets or informal places in which you could not know if uh, if they are going to give you guarantee, if they are going to give you an invoice, if they're going to give you a receipt for the product that you buy. So it's better because you're talking about the safety of your family, of your products, of your uh, everything that you will use around in your home in, at, at the office is to spend a little bit more, but you're investing in your safety. So buy at a retail store, buy directly from the manufacturer or the distributor, go to a formal store within a, a shopping mall, and you are going to get a receipt, you're going to receive a warranty, and, and you're going to get all the paperwork that will tell you that the product is authentic. So I think, and this is in my personal opinion, it's worthless to save maybe 15 bucks, $20 for a product that you're going to use maybe uh, for two or three years. But in a moment, and this is something that we have discussed uh, lately in different conferences that we do both nationally, nationally and internationally, is that, for example, you have an adapter or you have a, a, a charger, a battery charger. And, of course, what you're going to do is for the next day you are going to go out on a, on a trip, you're going to put it to charge the night before. And you will leave it all night long charging, and then the next day it will be 100% charged. But the problem with these products is that they do not have the components inside to once the battery is 100% charged, let's say at 3 a.m. in the morning, this, the authentic products, they cut the energy and they will be like in standby position for the rest of the night until you unplug them. Mm -hmm. The ones that are fake keep on charging the battery and therefore there is the risk of burning the battery, uh, making an explosion, or burn your whole electric installation. Wow, that's incredible. So this is just a brief example of things that could happen with a fake product. This has been really helpful, Dario, in speaking with you today. I want to thank you uh, for joining us on IP Fridays. On the contrary, thank you very much for the opportunity of, of sharing our experience, sharing our program, and sharing, of course, the, the safety mission that we, we want to spread the word all over the world. And it's been a pleasure. Excellent, Dario. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. 
You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.